And last but not least, Janet and Alan. We'll start with Janet. Janet's got a plug for our upcoming biblical theology workshop for the women. And then after Janet, Alan has an announcement to make on behalf of the elders. So I'm going to hand it over to Janet now. NancyGuthrie.com and read about her. She's an author and a teacher. Um, it'll be a workshop just for women, um, and it's on biblical theology. Um, what this workshop looks at is an approach and an understanding of the scriptures, recognizing that there's over 40 authors, it's over centuries. And there's a lot of different genre or types of literature, but there's one central theme um, that God pre presents to us about our world and the person and work of Christ. And so it will look at themes, central th themes, a lot of them Jonathan's covering. They're, they're not, you don't see it in the Bible, the word, but the themes are consistent on the first pages and tied together throughout scripture and we can see it at the end. This is really for anybody, um, any female. Um, I would think it would be appropriate for high schoolers if you have a middle schooler that you think would be interested, then you should talk to me or Cheryl. Um, Cheryl went to a workshop last, or this, yeah, last year um, in Atlanta, and then you could talk to Lori Burt or Molly Burt. Um, we went to one in Birmingham, and it is well worth it for you. It'll be, I promise you, a great thing for you to do. I'm just going to give you some bullet points. I don't see Cheryl. Um, I will be down here somewhere, and I have a little, as my dad would say, poop sheet, thanks to the Army, um, whatever else you call it, a little... Um, thing on, on the time and everything. It's $20. It's January the 30th. Our registration is due by the 17th. It's a video workshop. We will provide snacks and drinks um, and lunch. You're on your own. I would encourage you to bring a snack lunch and we can sit and fellowship. Whatever the mask or the COVID protocols are, they'll be in place since we're on the campus here. Um, so right now it's mask while we're up and around and um, you can take that off while you're seated and social distancing. We do have a limit and I would love to see us surpass that limit and have to open another day. Nancy has um, graciously given us this workshop. She um, videoed it in October and the deadline for using it was before the end of the year. But in talking with her, she was very gracious enough to say, yes, I'll, I'll allow you guys to use it. And so um, please sign up. Women, please come if you know someone who's not here or who isn't able to attend and they're going to be willing to get out at the end of January, then please encourage them to come. I'll be down here. You can talk to me, um, Haley Merritt or um, Cheryl Carroll.
good morning. I want to encourage the church this morning. I got word that uh, Randy Burke's mother is in not good shape. He's gone down to be with her today. And so we want to be in prayer for him. Randy's a faithful brother. And I, I was not aware of his mother's situation. Evidently, she's had an infection of some sort. It's become septic. So he's real concerned about her, rightly so. And I can identify with that. You know, we're aware he is the elders that uh, the church body is uh, wanting to know where you're going to go next, you know, with the approval of the uh, senior pastor. We've met with the church, we've heard the body, and it's been a blessing. I tell you what, God has really spoken through that to me. I know it to the fellow elders. And as we prayed together, I can't tell you the number of things he's opened up for us and, and just really a blessing to see him work in our midst and among our members, if you will. But I want to go through this protocol for you. We've worked out to, for the final stages of, of this uh, senior, uh, well, the lead pastor approval. But, uh, you know, we're sort of like uh, Joshua was. He says, what does my Lord say to his servant? And that's where we all are right now, waiting for God to give direction. But I think he's done that. And he's leading us in the church body. And what we're going to do is uh, Jonathan Merritt will be brought forward as a candidate, as a lead pastor. And he'd be examined uh, both doctorally and theologically. His family and his personal life would be examined. And he'd, be, he's, he'd meet with the congregation. Uh, there's going to be a period of time here, and this is a bit redundant, but the essence of it is, is you know, when he became a, an elder here, you go through a series of qualification examinations. And one of those, one of those examinations is uh, a period of time in order for the church body to bring any personal grievance they may have, something that's a, a, a problem or a struggle that's not been resolved. And so we allow a period of time for that. And we, even though it's going to be redundant, we're going to go through that again uh, because of the period of time that he's been here serving with us. We don't know if any news come up. So if it has, we're going we're gonna to rule that out. But that'll be part of this protocol. It'll be a four-week protocol in order to, to hear those uh, grievances. And the, the way pro procedurally, what you do is you bring that to Jonathan personally first, because Matthew 18 says you resolve this in as small a circle as possible. And if it can be resolved that way, that's the best way to do it. If it can't be resolution completed that way, then it's brought to the elders of the whole, and then we resolve it then. Uh, and... Uh, what we'll do, just see you have these sheets handed out this morning. They'll be out front. You'll also get them in the Enlightener. You'll get them in, in the email publications as well. Uh, beginning on January the 6th, the elders will meet with Jonathan. That's this coming Wednesday related to his candidacy. And this will be a time of personal questioning by us. If you will, on January the 10th, the staff will also meet. If they have any questions of Jonathan, ask them during that January 10th meeting. On January the 17th, the congregation will meet with Jonathan for a question and answer opportunity, and more time will be made available if needed. One thing that would help us a great deal with this, as far as laying out the format for these meetings, is that we knew the number of, of people who were coming. So if you were possibly anticipate coming to such a meeting, if you just call Patty at the church office and let her know so we get some idea about the number of people we're talking about, that way... We know whether we need to meet in the sanctuary here or in in educational area or in the fellowship hall. And that will facilitate the, the questioning, if you will. During that time, if more time is needed, it, we'll, we'll take that extra time if necessary. Then beginning on uh, J January the 18th, personal, uh, January, ending, ending, ending on February the 13th, 
and if confidential concerns can be brought during that period of time. On February the 14th, the announcement is to be made uh, as a possible congregational affirmation. And please pray in the meantime that God will give us guidance in this process. And I, I want to express from my heart, uh, I think is the, the heart of the elders, is we really appreciate prayers we've received. We have felt those prayers. They've been tremendously inspirational, helpful to us. So I'd ask you to, to continue that. Thank you. All right, so mark your calendars for January 17th. Um, we, that's, that'll be the Sunday that we have uh, essentially a, a member meeting, probably in the afternoon. We haven't settled on a time for that. Um, January 17th, it'll probably, probably be here in the sanctuary. Uh, that'll be your opportunity um, to lovingly, graciously, patiently um, throw softball questions to the prospective candidate, and hopefully that'll be in, uh, helpful for everybody involved, but, but do mark that down. And uh, January 17th being the, uh, the Sunday that, uh, that the membership is gonna be most actively involved, do continue to pray even ahead of that uh, for some of the meetings that are gonna be taking place with the elders and the rest of the staff, uh, that all of us would know God's direction and conviction moving forward, okay? All right, we are going to move into a time of uh, silence and reflection. In doing that, uh, let me read Psalm 29. Uh, in the message today, we're going to be looking at God's judgment in the flood during the days of Noah. Part of that is referenced in Psalm 29. So I'm going to read this psalm, and then immediately at the conclusion of this psalm, uh, we'll take uh, some moments of silence for you to reflect on the nature of God, who he is, what he's done, what he's revealed to us through his word. You may need or want to take the time to, uh, to confess any sin that has not been dealt with, uh, asking and uh, thanking the Lord for his forgiveness in uh, the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, or you may just want to try to Set your mind and your heart at ease and at rest so that you can uh, focus primarily on uh, worship as we go through the rest of this service. But Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Bow silently with me.
Father, we come to acknowledge that you rule and reign over this creation and over all peoples of the earth. We thank you that because we are your people, that we have the privilege of being able to know you as king and to respond accordingly. That whereas before we were in rebellion against you, that you, through the work of your son, have reconciled us to yourself, have paid the debt that we owed because of our sin, that you have adopted us into your family and sealed us and kept us by the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit. Father, as we continue now through, uh, through this service, we ask that both in song and in scripture and our spoken words and in the silent words that move through our minds that all that we do and say and think and feel would please you and would honor you so that our speech here would imitate the speech that's heard in heaven where we as your people would also say glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet as we continue to worship our Creator, Maker, and Redeemer today with a wonderful old song entitled, I Am Resolved. I am resolved no longer to linger
If you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Genesis chapter 6. We're covering today, we're not necessarily going to read every verse, but we're covering the section in Genesis that deals with the flood, God's judgment on the earth in the flood that starts in 6-9 and runs through 8-22. So what I'm going to do right now is, um, in, without reading every verse between 6-9 and 8-22, I'm going to read a handful of sections. It'll still be a healthy amount of text. handful of sections to give us uh, some sort of familiarity for what's happening in the big picture that we then can use and refer back to as we talk about what it is that's being revealed through these events. So start with me, for example, in Genesis 6, verse 9, and I'm going to read 6, 9 through the end of the chapter. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. 
Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Now skip down a little bit further into chapter 7 and pick up with me at verse 17. Genesis seven seventeen. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Go to chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased." And then skip down to the end of chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Noah and his family and all the animals on the ark disembark. And we read this in 8.20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall never cease. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes so that we would see wonderful things from your word. Help us to see how you reveal yourself to us, even in the act of judgment. Let it move us to worship you more wholeheartedly. May it cause us to walk more humbly before you. 
Most importantly, Lord, we ask that it would cause us to be ever more grateful for the judgment that Jesus took on himself so that we would not be carried away in your judgment. Thank you for this time that we have now, and we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to try to do three things with, uh, with this flood narrative in Genesis, or uh, approach it in three ways, and let me give them to you up front just to help you uh, know where we're going and hopefully to, to track a little bit better with what we do. Um, first, I'm going to look at God's strange work of judgment, God's strange work of judgment. Second, I want to take a look at Noah's salvation by faith. And then third, I want us to take a look at God's satisfaction with the offering of one man. So God's strange work of judgment, Noah's salvation by faith, and God's satisfaction of the offering of one man. Before we get to what we, what we mean when we talk about this strange work of judgment, it's important to recognize the description of the earth. What is the condition that warrants this kind of drastic action? We had already seen last week when we were looking at 6, 1 through 8, that wickedness, verse 5, Genesis 6, 5, the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We come down a little bit further, and in verses 11 and 12, and even into 13, notice the repetition that you have here to emphasize or to stress how bad the situation is. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. What, what's a good one word that you can use to describe the earth now? Corrupt. Very good. All right, the idea is corruption, ruin, wasted. So it's the ruined or corrupted piece of fruit that now is not good for anything except to be thrown out. It's the clothes that have been irreparably or irredeemably stained. Well, that's ruined. Can't do anything with it anymore. The earth was corrupted, and we're also told in verse 11 that it's filled with violence, which is also a phrase that's repeated in verse 13. When God comes and speaks to Noah, he says, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Bless you. Right? You were all thinking it. The earth is filled with violence because of them. There is probably something here of a, of a play on word, well, not necessarily a play on words, but a, a little um, use of the phrasing of the vocabulary to, to see a contrast in the way things were to the way things are. So if you think back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates man and woman, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, we hear that the earth is being filled 
with people, but with the people filling the earth, there's also the earth being filled with violence because of the people. So what God has created and intends to be, this life and this creation that's teeming and flourishing with His goodness and His blessing because of sin and rebellion and its deepening effects on the human heart and mind, what was meant to be a realm of unending blessing has become pain and turmoil and curse and disease and violence. And as God looks on this situation, the situation has become so dire and so grim that the Lord says, enough. The only action that the Lord deems fit for this situation is to wipe out everyone and everything on the face of the earth and essentially to start over new. It's that bad. Now, one of the things that is troublesome oftentimes to us in judgment passages in Scripture is the seemingly cold or callous or disaffected way that God moves on His creation or moves on people to judge them. Right? We look at some of the atrocities in human history, thousands of people being killed, millions of, being, of people being killed, have no idea what the population of the earth was at this time. But however many people it was to say that people, animals, plants, everything is going to be wiped out, that is a shocking, arresting statement to be made by the Lord. And oftentimes, we have a difficult time trying to reconcile this austere, harsh reaction of God with the other depictions of God that we have in Scripture, right? On the one hand, we do not, we, we cannot, we dare not minimize the fact that God is just, and that because God is just, He will, in His wisdom and in His sovereignty, execute His justice in His creation. We do not want to diminish that, and we do not want to deny it or take away from it. That said, older writers and people who wrestle with these ideas would refer to this work or this act of God judging as God's strange work. And by that, what they would mean is, when you look through Scripture, it is important to recognize that God is just, that He is holy, that He is righteous, that He does call people to account for sin, but to recognize that when He does that, that is not the best depiction or description of who God is in His very nature and essence. So, in other words, when we read descriptions or declarations about who God is in Scripture, we read things like, God is love. We don't read statements, God is anger. Do you see? In other words, God in His nature is much more desirous, is much more quick, is much more eager 
to show love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness than he is to judge and to exercise anger, just anger over sin. So there are even these unique statements in Scripture. Lamentations 3, you don't need to turn there. Lamentations 3.33 says that he, God, does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. He does not willingly afflict or grieve the sons of men, which seems a bit odd because it seems like there's a lot of affliction going on in Scripture. There's a whole lot of smiting going on. The point in a statement like Lamentations is not to say that someone has to twist God's arm to move him to deal with sin, but it is a way to say that at the core of God's being, this is not what defines God. And the way that that is demonstrated even in the Genesis 6 passage with the flood is to notice what God says to Noah both at the front end of the flood and after the flood has taken place. So if you skip down to verse 18, Genesis 6, 18, the flood has not come on the earth yet. Noah has not even begun to build the ark. The Lord is telling Noah that he is about to judge and destroy everything because of the corruption. And look at verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark. And then if you flip over just a couple pages to Genesis chapter 9, look at Genesis 9, 9. The Lord is speaking to Noah, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you, both before the flood and after the flood, God declares in no uncertain terms that, Noah, what I am looking to do on the other side of this judgment is to establish a covenant with you and a covenant that will be to the benefit of you and your descendants after you. In other words, it is important to recognize that even though God is intentionally, knowingly, freely judging the sin and the wickedness and the corruption that is on the earth, even when He does that, He is not judging merely for the sake of judging. He is judging for the ultimate goal and purpose of establishing a covenant with Noah that will rebound to the benefit of all of creation. Judgment is His strange work. But because God is loving and gracious and compassionate, covenant-making, covenant-keeping, grace and mercy and love, those things are His normal, natural work. Right? This, this needs to, to shape and change the way that we conceive and think of God. There needs to be a way where we hold in balance the love and the grace, the, the long-suffering of God with the fact that He does ultimately call sinners to account. But not to hold those things in balance in such a way that we give an improper due to one over the other. God is, by nature, 
loving and compassionate and kind. Judgment is, in one sense, his last resort. Further, what you begin to see as you go through the flood narrative or the flood story, God declares up front that I'm going to judge the earth, but I'm going to enter into covenant with you, Noah, and your descendants after you. But you also begin to see that what God is doing through the, through the flood is he's doing something of a work of recreation. So in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, there's darkness over the surface of the deep, right? This, this formless, disordered void is covered with water. And in fact, one of the first things that God does in the creation account is He separates water from the land so that dry land appears. In other words, before God begins to shape and form and fashion, the creation in its earliest moments, was inundated, was submerged underwater. What is God doing here with Noah? He is saying, this creation has become so corrupt, it is so vile that the only way to make it right again is to recreate. So whereas the waters had covered the land, had covered the earth before, and God separated and brought life and order and goodness out of it, what is God going to do? He's going to bring the waters back over the land, back over His creation. He's going to bring the, the waters of chaos to cover His creation again so that when the waters recede this second time, you have a new, clean, fresh creation. So if we're looking at the big picture, as unsettling and as uncomfortable as it is to read about this global universal destruction, we want to keep in mind that God does this for the purpose of entering into a prized covenant relationship with His people, and second, so that creation can enjoy His blessing again. God does not judge simply because He goes on a power kick. God does not judge simply because He delights to see people suffer. God Himself says in Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why then will you not turn and repent? This judgment is a strange but necessary work that God does. Within that strange work of creation, you have also then God's salvation given to Noah and to his family. God is going to judge all of the earth, and yet in the midst of the judgment, God is going to see to it that a small remnant is kept, is preserved, is saved, is set apart. One of the things that we want to take notice, and here's another balancing act, so to speak, that needs to be, needs to be practiced, is to look at the way that Noah is described in this portion of Scripture. So, in, at the end of chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, verse 22, 
after the Lord reveals to Noah what his plans are, what he's going to do, and what Noah must do in order to be saved, we read in 6.22, Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Skip down to 7, verse 5. Sorry, chapter 7, verse 5. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Skip down to verse 9, Genesis 7, 9. There went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And then again in 7, 16. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. And then the Lord closed the door. At the end of chapter 6 and into into chapter 7, four different times, Noah's obedience to the word of the Lord is stressed or is emphasized. Now, hold your place here and go to Hebrews chapter 11. When we read descriptions in Genesis 6 and 7 about Noah being a righteous man, and we read about Noah obeying completely everything that God commanded him to do, it's very easy and it's very tempting to think that in some way Noah received favor from the Lord because of how good of a person he was. Remember last week, before we're ever told anything about Noah and his behavior and his conduct, we're told that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah did not earn God's favor. He found it. It was given to him. Nevertheless, while Noah is going to be saved because of God's grace and kindness and mercy, not because he deserves it, Noah is still nevertheless a recipient of grace who obeys in light of the grace that God is giving him. The way that this is articulated in Hebrews 11, you see in verse 7. So Hebrews 11, 7 says this, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Why was Noah saved in Genesis? Was he saved because he earned his salvation? Was he saved because God owed him grace? Was he saved because he earned God's favor. No, Noah was saved because of his faith. But, no, 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 not but, and. And because of his faith, Noah obeyed. 
You see how this works? God comes to Noah and tells him about the judgment that is coming and says, here is the way for you to avoid and to be saved from the judgment that's to come. You have to go here. You have to do this. You have to enter into the safety that I'm going to provide for you. Noah has two options. He can believe what God is saying and respond in obedience, or he cannot believe what God is saying and totally ignore what God tells him to do, disobey. It is because Noah believes the Word of God that Noah obeys the Word of God. Think about what this experience would have been like for Noah what it, would require, what it would have required of him to do what God is asking him to do. How long does it take to build an ark, to build some sort of a boat that is longer than a football field when you have no power tools, when you have no Harvey lumber, no yellow wood, when you don't have a crew except for your three boys. How long would that kind of a project take? How many days and months and years of your life are you having to give to build this boat with no sign or no indication that this is going to pay off? This is what the Lord said is going to happen. I believe it's going to happen, so I better do it. What are people going to say as sun up to sundown, you do the same thing over and over and over and over again with seemingly nothing to show for it. You think Noah wins the admiration and the respect of a corrupt world? You think Noah and his sons, by building this ark, effectively renew the culture from the inside? I imagine that because Noah is called elsewhere in the New Testament a preacher of righteousness, because even in Hebrews 11 we're told that by Noah's faith he condemned the world, I take it that Noah's act of faith, because he believed, he obeyed, I take it that that act of faith, day in and day out, put him in direct conflict and confrontation with the world around him. Why would anybody do something like that? There's no glorious soundtrack that's playing in the background while Noah whistles while he works. Noah is not living his best life now when he builds the boat. Noah is building the boat painstakingly day in and day out merely because he believes what the Lord has told him and believes that what the Lord has spoken will indeed come true. Go from Hebrews to 2 Peter chapter 3. 
and see if the faith that Noah demonstrated, a faith leading to obedience, is not a model for God's people today. 2 Peter chapter 3, start at verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Imagine Noah. Noah, where's the sign of this flood you're talking about? Today is just like yesterday and the day before that, and tomorrow is going to be just like today. What are, what are you talking about? What are you, what are you building? What are you working for? Verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Do you hear Noah in there? Verse 7, but by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Another judgment is coming. Another universal worldwide judgment is going to come because the Lord has said judgment is coming. Skip down to verse 11. 2 Peter 3.11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to His promise... We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What are you building? What are you building for? Is your, is your building, is your effort, what you give your life to, is it a reflection of a mind that is convinced that today is going to be just like tomorrow, is going to be just like the next day after that, and so on and so on. It's just the way life is. Do you build, do you give your life to things that are rooted firmly in these things that are ultimately going to be taken away? Or, like Noah do you say, the Lord has spoken and has said, all of this order that we see now, this created order, this age, all of this is going to come to an end. There's going to be a renewal of the creation order. God is going to start new with His people again. And that's the life, that's the existence that I want to begin to respond to now. When you live your life by faith, with the kind of obedience that you find faith compelling you to act on, you will be put at odds with the world around you. 
the things that you give your time and your energy and your effort and your resources to will look foolish to the world around you. If my life, if your life does not look foolish in the eyes of the world, if our lives and what we are giving ourselves to does not look like a waste, I may need to question whether or not I'm investing in the right places. If I believe that all flesh fades and withers like the grass, but the word of the Lord stands forever. If I believe that, where will I spend most of my time? What will I give my attention to? What will capture my thinking, my affections, my aspirations? If I believe that God has said, it is in this new people that I've created, the church, that real joy and happiness is going to be found, and it's the church that is going to enjoy unending blessings, where am I going to want to spend my time? Where am I going to want to invest my life? But with the people of God. If I believe that charm is deceitful and beauty is fading, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, what do I want to impart to my children? By faith, Noah was saved because he believed that what the Lord said was coming would come. By faith, Noah was saved, responding obediently to the word of the Lord, even though he could not see what was coming in the future. He was convicted by the word of God that it was as certain as the present experience that he was living in. And he lived in light of that. Noah is saved by his faith. Noah is also saved through judgment. One of the things that you see over and over and over again in Scripture is that God demonstrates the ability to simultaneously judge and save. The flood comes, God exercises, executes His judgment on a sinful, corrupt world to wash it clean and to make it new, to enter into a new covenant relationship with Noah and his descendants. And while that judgment is happening, He is sovereignly, providentially, holding Noah and his family safe in this little wood box. All of creation hinges on whether or not these people will be brought through safely to the other side. 
when we fast forward to the New Testament, we find that that's the exact same picture that we get when it comes to the sacrifice of Christ, that God exercises His judgment on sin by pouring out His judgment on Christ so that simultaneously, as His Son is being judged, His people can be saved. God saves us through the judgment of His Son. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're supposed to be in Genesis, but there are so many connections with the New Testament that you have to touch on some of this. 1 Peter chapter 3. Skip down to verse, what do we want? We want verse 18. First Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And then listen to what Peter says, verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, in other words, not the actual water liquid, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Do you hear the connection that's being made there? Peter says the picture that we have in the Old Testament of Noah and his family being brought through the waters of judgment to enter into a new life, a new creation, that is like what happens to us when we pass through the waters of God's judgment safely in Christ. Baptism is a reenactment of that. By the way, can, can we pause here for a second? Let me make, well, I was going to say a shameless plug. Not even that. Let me appeal to you on the goodness of God and the goodness of His Word. If you have not been baptized, if you are a believer in the saving work of Jesus Christ and you have not done what Peter is talking about here, made this appeal to God for a clean conscience through baptism, reenacting the fact that in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you yourself were contained in Christ, were submerged into the judgment of His death, but brought through safely to live on the other side? Why would you not do that? Why would you not respond in faith to the work of Christ by a simple act of obedience? Go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them. The very first thing, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Noah was saved by faith through judgment. Very briefly then, third point. Notice God's satisfaction with one man's offering. Go down to the very end of chapter 8. 
Pick up at verse 20. Noah comes off of the boat, comes off of the ark with his family, with the animals, and we read in Genesis 8:20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every unclean animal, of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Pause right there. Do you hear the mercy and grace of God in that statement? Noah comes off of the boat having passed safely through the waters of universal judgment to begin this new life that God has graciously given to him and his family, in response to that act of God, he offers up this sacrifice. God looks on the sacrifice of this one man and says, because of that pleasing sacrifice, I will no longer judge the way that I just judged. Hear further, it's not that God is saying, I will not judge anymore because they've learned their lesson. I will not judge anymore because Noah has it figured out now. We'll get to that in chapter 9. The Lord is not saying, I will not judge anymore because surely now people are just going to do better. Do you hear what the Lord is saying? I am no longer going to judge in this way, not because of man, in spite of man. His thoughts, the intents of his heart, continue to be evil. But it is the Lord who freely, graciously says, even so, I will not judge like that again. If an animal carcass on a rudimentary, crude altar built by this one man is ground enough for God to say, Freely and with pleasure. I will, no I will never again bring this kind of flood or this kind of curse upon the earth. How much more safety and security can there be when God himself provides his own offering? If God can be so gracious and merciful to this weak, inadequate act of worship, sincere and genuine as it is, but from a fallen, corrupt sinner, how much more satisfied will God be when His own Son, in perfection and obedience and in full righteousness, offers up Himself to the Father to say, no longer do you need to judge sin. It is less likely that you and I, if 
the sacrifice of Christ has been made on our account, it is less likely that you and I will fall out of God's mercy than it is that the sun will stop shining today. More certain than the fact that the earth is going to continue to spin on its axis and make its path around the sun, more certain than that is the love and the mercy and the favor that you and I have because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When God judged His Son, He did not judge His Son merely for the sake of venting His anger, but He did so to make something new. He judged sin in the flesh of His own Son in order to enter into a covenant relationship with His people and to begin the work of making a new created order that we would enjoy with Him forever. That's part of what we're about to celebrate right now with communion. That because God has brought the flood of judgment down upon His Son and has brought us safely through, we now get to feast on His provision day in and day out knowing that we are safe and secure. Let's pray. Father, how we marvel at the mercy that you have given to undeserving sinners. That it's by grace through faith that we are saved, not because of our obedience, but because of the obedience of your Son, who stood as our representative and our substitute. As we move to take part in this sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would renew in our minds and hearts the security, the stability that we have in the covenant of Jesus Christ, that judgment has fully been, has been exercised fully and completely, and we no longer need to fear the wrath that is to come. Thank you for your judgment on Christ so that we could live. Amen. I'll ask our uh, deacons if they would come down to the front to help us distribute the elements. These men will bring, uh, will bring the plates to you. Most of you are probably familiar right now. We have the individual little uh, packets that has both the wafer and the juice. If you'll just simply take one and hold on to it until we're ready to partake of the elements. After they've been distributed, I'll lead us through uh, partaking of the, the bread and the, and the juice. So men, go ahead.
the saints sing amen. Just your voices unto God. How Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If you'll take the wafer on the top of your packet there, Go back that first thin, clear layer. Take and eat, remembering that he was broken and bruised so that you could be made whole. If you would peel back the next layer to get to the juice. Take and drink knowing that he died so that you could live. Father, may the, the gift of the offering of your son up on our behalf be united to our hearts in faith so that like Noah and like the saints who have gone before us, our faith would compel us to move in obedience and devotion to you as we look forward to that new creation, that new heaven and new earth, the city that's to come where righteousness dwells. Amen. Then sings my soul 